I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Most of you are looking up here and thinking, what is going on, right? Most of you are used to seeing me with a guitar in my hand and a microphone in front of my face. And yet today I have the privilege of opening up God's word with you as we continue our summer series through the book of 2 Timothy. That's been entitled Finishing Strong. And as I said, we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 8 here in chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible today, our ushers are going to come forward and they're going to turn around and walk to the back. And I'll just invite you to slip your hand up into the air. And one of our ushers would love to put a copy of God's Word into your hand. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep this. Keep this as our gift to you and just trust that as you read it, that you will be encouraged and exposed to God and to Christ and to the truth of salvation. Well, as I said today, uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. And this, this is a colossal text before us today. Uh, this text will have staggering implications for our lives if we are faithful to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And so as we dive in, before we begin, I just want to ask you a question. And I want you to consider this question in your mind as you answer it, okay? And when I say that, I don't mean something like, oops, just think for a second, you know, but, but don't really come up with an answer because you know the preacher's going to give it to you anyways. I mean, like, truthfully think and consider this question in your own life, okay? If you died today, if you died today, what kind of legacy would you leave behind? If you died today, what kind of legacy would you leave behind? I love what Charles Spurgeon says regarding death and legacy. He says, carve your hearts, carve your name, I should say, on hearts, not on marble. Carve your name on hearts, not on marble. So for you today, if you were to die today, what would be carved upon the hearts of those who know you best, those who love you most? And more importantly, is the legacy that you'd leave the legacy that God desires of you? Maybe I can ask it in one more way, and that would be in the spirit of Jonathan Edwards, his 17th resolution. He says, how can you and I ensure that as we have come to die, that we have truly lived? that we have left the right legacy, the legacy that God wants us to leave. You see, right now in 2 Timothy, Paul is reflecting upon his life and his legacy. We know if you've been here at all over the course of this summer that he's in prison, that he's waiting to die, and he's writing to his protege in the faith, Timothy. He's encouraging him, right, to press on, finish strong, fulfill the ministry that God has given you. And yet we see in this text today that Paul kind of pulls over a little bit to the side and he turns his writing, instead of calling Timothy to go and do this and to be that, his writing turns more towards himself and we get a window into his own assessment of his life and his legacy to the Lord. Paul gets introspective. He reflects on his past, on his present, and also on the future. And it's in this assessment of his own life that Paul and the Lord give us, give you and I a rubric through which we can assess and evaluate our own life and legacy. So let's read through the text together. Let's dive in. I know that you're eager to do that. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. 
Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. If you were here last week, you saw that we looked at four statements necessary for consistent Christian living. And because these texts, as we're going to see in a second, they're so tightly connected, I kind of want to piggyback on top of that idea from last week. And so we're going to be reflecting upon this morning three questions for leaving a consistent Christian legacy, okay? Three questions for reflecting, or sorry, for leaving a consistent Christian legacy. That first question here this morning is this, am I living every day like it's my last? Am I living every day like it's my last? Again, look at the text. Paul says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So immediately off the top of this section, right, we see the connection here to the prior passage in the word for. And we need to understand right at the gate that everything that Paul is saying here is connected to this prior passage. It's so closely connected with the charge that he has just given to Timothy. In fact, that word four could be understood kind of like, Timothy, you need to fulfill verses one to five because of everything I'm saying to you now in verses six to eight, okay? So in that sense, Paul's not pulling aside here for a moment of reflection that's actually isolated from the surrounding context, but he's actually heightening the urgency of Timothy fulfilling his calling. He's heightening the urgency. He's almost saying, Timothy, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come, and so you need to step up today. Like, you need to have courage. You need to have zeal. You need to fulfill the mission that God has put you on. You need to take this baton and to carry the gospel ministry forward. Now, if you've been in the church for any length of time, I'm sure you recognize the idea here of offering. That Paul mentions, but it's really fascinating and significant that he uses the term drink offering as opposed to any other kind of offering. And this is why. In Numbers 15, verses 1 to 10, the drink offering was prescribed by God to the people of Israel to finalize and to accompany the burnt offering. Now, if you've read Leviticus or Numbers before, you know that the burnt offering, when, when the people of Israel were coming to give a free will offering or fulfill a vow to the Lord, they would come, they would take one of their lambs, and they would sacrifice it as an offering of worship to the Lord. And this was the burnt offering. It was burn constantly for hours upon hours. And then after that, they would take some fine flour and they would mix it with oil and they would offer that to the Lord as well. And then finally, they would take wine and they would pour out that wine over top of the burnt offering as the final act of worship or sacrifice. And so when you, when you see that analogy, you can make, it makes sense of Paul's train of thought here, right? This forms such a great analogy for his current situation because we know that throughout the New Testament, Paul has viewed every single one of his days, each and every day, as an offering to God. Paul's life was the burnt offering. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1, he says, calling to the church of Rome to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy 
and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So rather in the Old Testament where we see that spiritual worship was seen in offering animal sacrifices, Paul's saying now our spiritual worship in one sense, in a broad sense, is just offering your whole life to God. Another verse that you're familiar with, I'm sure, 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 31, he says, whatever, or sorry, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, right, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And what does it mean to do everything to the glory of God except to do everything for his worship and for his honor? And so Paul, as he viewed his entire life up to this point as a sacrifice of worship to God, now he looks upon this present stage as a final act of worship, a final sacrifice. He's no longer full of faith for deliverance like we've seen in the past, but he's confident. He's confident that the time of his departure has come. That Greek word used for departure here pictures the idea of untying the ropes that hold a ship to its mooring and that allow it to sail onto a new journey. So you can see the rich and the powerful metaphor here that Paul is using for his death. He faces it with confidence. He's not fearful. He's not apprehensive. He knows what's happening. And we know this because in verse six, he says, I am already being point or poured out. So Paul uses the passive voice there, right? Notice that he is being poured out. He is no longer actively pouring himself out as an offering to God. He's sitting and resting in the sovereignty of God, understanding that God has him where he wants him and he's ready to sail home. I mean, this is staggering, right? We've studied through the book of Acts, and now we've studied through the book of 2 Timothy. We see the great apostle Paul, the one whose life was turned upside down on the road to Damascus, the one who was chosen as God's special instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel, the one who spent his entire life proclaiming the risen Christ throughout the Roman world and often with great physical suffering and personal suffering, and now he's standing at death's door, and he's doing so with a settled confidence. What a contrast that is to how so many others have faced death. You know, Mahatma Gandhi, on the edge of his life, he said this, my days are numbered. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in a slew of despond. All about me is darkness. I'm praying for light. Or Napoleon Bonaparte, he says, I die before my time and my body will be given back to earth to become the food of worms. Such is the fate which soon awaits the great Napoleon. Friends, how can you and I know that as we have come to die, that we have truly lived? We can do that by as Paul has, pouring out every single one of our days like it's our last Day. I know that this cultural idea of living every day like it's your last, it's kind of a recipe, right, for just doing whatever you want, however you want to do it. And I know that talking about death and mortality is, is, is taboo. It's something that we naturally want to shy away from. And yet the scripture speaks so clearly to us that in Psalm 90, it says that it's actually wise for us to reflect upon our own mortality. It says, teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Friends, we need to embrace the brevity of life. We need to embrace the brevity of life. Not so that we can go do whatever we want, whenever we want, but so that we can ensure that we're doing the right things with urgency, so that we can ensure that we're leaving the legacy that God desires of us. 
One author says this, which I love this quote. He says, we have, to our detriment, created a cult of denial about our own mortality. Life needs to be lived and prioritized with the understanding that it's limited. An awareness of one's mortality makes life richer because the important can be emphasized and the trivial marginalized. That is so instructive for our hearts and for our lives. You see, so often, like, we spend our days with no intentionality, right? There's no focus, there's no goal, there's no priority. Each day is kind of just whatever comes our way, and we pour ourselves out into lesser things. And yet when we see the life and the death of the Apostle Paul, we see a man who lived with such urgency, with such zeal, with such courage. He poured himself out for the gospel. He lived every day of his life, pouring out every drop as an act of worship to God. And friends, we have been called. We've been called to do the same thing. And so, you know, as we quickly observe and survey the life of Paul, like what kind of things consumed his life? What kind of things was he consumed with from a day to day? We know the word of God, right? We know generosity, we know hospitality, we know discipleship, we know evangelism. And yet, I don't know about you, but I can find myself so easily pouring myself out into things that are of way lesser importance. Things like reputation, things like my physical appearance or physical health, things like my possessions or money. Like, I'm guilty of all of these things. And there's, they're just of so much lesser importance. Now, now, hear me out. These things can be really good things. I know that, you know, money, career, these kind of things can be an easy target for preachers sometimes. And so I just, I want you to hear me out because God has given many of us a job, right, that we're called to steward each and every day. We're called to work hard for his glory. And God has given each one of us a different measure of finances that we're called to steward, right? We're called to think about, to use it wisely. And definitely that takes effort and consideration and time. And we've all been given possessions, and we need possessions for this life. So don't misunderstand me as just writing off these temporal things as if they're unspiritual or they're ungodly or they're of no value. We don't disregard these things because that's not what God has called us to either. But what matters is this, right? We see, we see their use, we see their priority, and we see our perspective of them through the lens of how can they be used as an act of worship to God. All these things that God has given to us, they are not an end in themselves. They are a means to an end. And that end is worshiping God. And all I'm saying here is that our hearts, if your heart is, is any at all like mine, which I believe at times it can be, uh, these good things can become ultimate things. These things can consume us. And so maybe there's something in your life today. Maybe there's something in your family's life today that you need to sacrifice. As you reflect upon your days and you think of the things that fill your schedule that are of lesser importance, maybe there's something that needs to be cut out. It's Labor Day, right? The fall is officially starting. Boo! Right? And the kids are going back to school. Yay! Unless it's your kid's first day like mine, then it's boo. I'm sad about that, but... What a perfect time to sit down as a family or just personally and to say, hey, these are the things. These are the things that we want to dominate our schedule because God says they need to be a priority in our lives. Not just allowing your day to happen to you, but owning your day unto the glory of God. 
And maybe it's something like, hey, we want to leave a lasting legacy of spiritual investment or discipleship in our kids. And so one way we can do that is by prioritizing family worship. And so uh, just as an example, you know, two days a week or something, we're going we're gonna to watch a YouTube video of a worship song and sing that as a family. And then we're going we're gonna to read the Bible together. We're going to pray together. We're going to do these things because we believe that that would be honoring to the Lord. And maybe the goal there is to do it every day, but just to start small. You know, or maybe it's, you've moved onto a new street like I recently have, and I'm sitting here thinking, man, how can my neighbors know that I'm a believer? I need to invite these people over. And so once a month, that's something that is our goal. We want to invite people into our house. Just again, starting small once a month is like, really, once a month? That's not that much. But for us, that's the beginning, right? We just want to start small, but we want to be faithful to evangelize. We want to have people into our house that we can build relationships with, that we can talk to the Lord about. So whatever it is for you, friends, those are two examples, but whatever it is for you, we're called to live with intentionality and with urgency. And Paul has the unique advantage here of knowing that his time is coming, as we've seen. He knows that this is the final stage of life, but... Here's the reality, right? For you and us, we don't know. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be a month, could be a year, could be 10 years. We have no idea when or how. But we do know that our time of departure will come. And so here's what we can do, right? Here's what we can do. Wake up each and every day. Every single day is a gift from God. Every single day is a gift from God. And so we can wake up by his grace, pour ourselves out every single drop as an act of worship to Christ. And how do we do that? We do that by living every day like it's our last. The second question we need to ask ourselves this morning if we're to leave a legacy, a consistent Christian legacy is this. Am I living every day with no regrets? Am I living every day with no regrets? Paul says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And there's a shift here that we need to notice, right? In verse 6, Paul's looking at his present reality. He says, I am already being. That's a present tense statement. He's stuck in prison. He's evaluating this fact that he knows his time has come. And yet in verse 7, we see a shift here from assessing his present situation to reflecting upon his past, right? I have, I have, I have. Those are past tense statements. And so he uses in this verse three different metaphors to describe the whole of his Christian life and ministry. Now, our translations, um, they don't really do this verse justice. They make, at least in one sense, they make this verse seem as if the emphasis is on Paul, right? The beginning of each statement is, I have, I have, I have. And so it's You know, you can read it almost as if Paul is standing on his high horse, boasting about the accomplishments that he has done, and yet we know that that's not the case, right? We know that Paul was so abundantly aware of God's grace at work in his life, which enabled him to get to this point and to be able to look back. And so although there is a sense in which Paul is putting himself out as an example and as motivation for Timothy and for us as to how we ought to live The actual Greek formation of this verse puts the emphasis on the back half of the verse and secondarily on Paul. You could read it something like, the good fight I have fought, the race I have run, the faith I have kept. The emphasis, you see, is primarily on the nature of Christian life and ministry. So first, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. Paul fought 
Literally, he competed for the prize as if in an athletic contest. He contended. He struggled with great effort and agonizing. This word can be used as strenuously zealous for something, striving after something with strenuous zeal. I don't know about you, but like we're three words into this verse and I'm already convicted by that. Like, is there any effort? Is there great effort in my own life, in your life, towards your, your, your Christian life and ministry? Is it such a priority for you each and every day that you're contending to fulfill what God has called you to? And, and what is he fighting in? What is he fighting? What is this good fight? Notice Paul doesn't just say, uh, I was in a fight, you know, or, or I fought in a good fight. No, he says, I fought in the good fight. Friends, there's a specific fight that we are called to fight. There's a specific race that we are called to run. There's a specific faith that we are to keep. And so, whereas our last point was focused on urgency of pouring ourselves out every single day with the attitude like every day could be our last, the emphasis in this verse is on doing the right things in the right way, okay? Not just doing something. That's urgency. Anybody can be urgent and just do something. The question is, how can we do the right things in the right way? And so in a word, we would describe that as faithfulness, right? How can we be, be faithful? Faithfulness has been described as long obedience in the same direction, long obedience over time. And again, it's easy to be faithful to all sorts of things, but are they the things that matter? What has Paul been faithful to? The good fight, right? What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel mission, right? His Christian life and ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul actually charges Timothy with the same idea. He says, fight the good fight of faith, this ministry that God has called him to and that he has fulfilled in him. And this is the good news, right? We have Paul looking back. He's saying he did it. And so we know it's possible. He did it. He was faithful to the task that God has called him to. And that's why Paul lived each and every day with no regrets. Next, we see that Paul had finished the race. Another athletic metaphor, he uses this language in 1 Corinthians 9.24, where he says, Do not run in a race, as, or do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. I love this. Paul demanded of himself what he commanded in others. That's a great leadership principle there, right? Paul demanded of himself what he commanded in others. And so in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 9, we see that Paul says, hey, you, you run that you may obtain the prize. And in 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And then we come to 2 Timothy and he says, I have fought. I have finished the race. Well, this word race is also used in other passages as the word uh, course or path, almost like I have finished the course. I have completed the path that has been laid out for me. What's interesting, in Acts 20, Paul's talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, and Timothy's actually there with him. So this is so cool. Timothy's actually there with him. This is 10 years before he writes 2 Timothy, and this is what he says about his life, okay? He says in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
Think of this from Timothy's perspective for a second, okay? So these were the elders of the church that Timothy is now pastoring. We know that he is in Ephesus. And so 10 years prior, Timothy hears Paul saying, these are my life goals. This is my mission. I want to finish the course, the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ has given me to testify to the gospel. And now 10 years later, he's writing to Timothy. And what does he say? I've done it. I have finished the course. I have finished the course. Like, do you know how many things can go wrong in 10 years? How easy would it be for Paul to lose sight of the mission, for Paul to fail, for that goal to become something else? I don't know about you, but like, how easy is it to lose sight of that in 10 minutes? That's my own life. This has got to be so motivating for Timothy because 10 years later, he sees this consistent, faithful track record day after day, week after week, year after year, Paul is moving in the same direction, faithful to that same goal. There's a similar uh, analogy that we could use from professional athletics. Um, For for athletes that uh, display an unusual um, amount of physical endurance, they're given the title the Iron Man. If you've watched baseball at all, you might know the name Cal Ripken. He's not there anymore. He retired a long time ago. But Cal Ripken Jr. was given this title in baseball. He played 2,632 consecutive games in a row. That's the equivalent of 16.25 years of baseball played consecutively. Or Brett Favre in football, he played 297 consecutive starts as a quarterback. That's the equivalent of 18.56 years of consistency. Or one more, Jeff Gordon, racing. I don't know if anybody watches racing, but baseball and football are maybe a little bit more popular. But Jeff Gordon in racing, 797 races started. 23.404 years of consistency, like that's motivating to me. I'm inspired by seeing these guys' faithfulness and their consistency in their sports. And one of the most incredible and kind of common characteristics of somebody who is given the title Ironman is this. They have the ability to play through injury, right? The ability to struggle, to fight, to contend, to push past all the physical obstacles that would tempt them or get in the way of stopping them from the goal. And yet they pressed on. I think in the same way, you know, as Paul was sitting in his prison, he's reflecting on his own life. Maybe he's remembering that consistent priority, that goal that he set out, that priority of faithfulness to the Lord. And this goal motivated him to keep at it until the time of his death had come. Well, what about for us? Like 23 years is a long time. How many of you can say that there's a goal that you've set 10 years ago that you are now fulfilling or that you have fulfilled? I don't know about you, but for me, like I'm working in small goals. And so one suggestion maybe that I would have for you as you want to start something out today for your own life is just look at some habits. Look at some spiritual habits, some godly characteristics that you can form. In my own life, the Lord had been convicting me about the fact that I was, uh, I can be transparent with you all, right? We're family. We're family here this morning. Uh, That I was overly critical. And the Lord was just convicting me of that constantly. And so Um, through his conviction, I decided that I want to be more of an encourager. And and, and the Lord put that on my heart, that that is something that embodies somebody who loves the Lord. They're encouraging, they're uplifting and edifying to others. And so I would take, you know, a piece of paper and on one side of the page, I would write down the numbers one to 31 for one day of the month. And there was maybe three or four habits across the top of the page. And each day in the morning as I would wake up, I would reflect on the previous day and say, hey, did I encourage somebody? 
You know, did I, did I read God's word yesterday? Did I share the gospel? You know, whatever it is, maybe it's a godly characteristic or maybe it's, maybe it's a spiritual habit for you. And this, you know, it wasn't a legalistic thing. It wasn't anything like that. But you better be sure that after a, after a few days, after 10 days or so of seeing that streak, like I felt the pressure of wanting to do that again. It motivated me to keep on that same track because I was looking at that page and I was seeing those 10 X's or whatever it was you know, in a row. And so, as I said, maybe it's a godly characteristic. Maybe it's a spiritual habit. Maybe it's something that you feel like the Lord has been convicting you of in a specific area. Friends, get after that today. Get after that today. And here's why. This is the principle that's so helpful for our hearts today. We accumulate faithfulness. We accumulate faithfulness by establishing a pattern of faithfulness. Right? We accumulate faithfulness by establishing a pattern of faithfulness. There are so many squandered lives, okay? And squandered lives, if you dial that back, begin with squandered years. And squandered years are squandered months. And squandered months are squandered weeks and squandered days. And so if we want to set out to have a legacy of faithfulness to the Lord, we need to establish that pattern. We need to establish that pattern of faithfulness day after day, week after week, month after month. We need to be obedient over time. Well, lastly, Paul has kept the faith. And the idea here is that he guarded the faith, that he kept it. We know, I think, what this is. The faith being a term that describes the whole body of Christian doctrine or truth. Paul believed its message. Paul preached its message. And Paul preserved its message over the time of his ministry. And so he uses all three of these different metaphors kind of to capture the same idea. I hope that you're seeing that. This idea of persevering to the end. This idea of preserving or prioritizing, I should say, faithfulness to the Lord. Again, you know, living with no regrets from a cultural perspective means living without consequences, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Regardless of who's offended, we're not going to look back. It doesn't matter, And that's not what I'm encouraging this morning. I hope that you see that. But like the Apostle Paul, we can look back and say, hey, what's actually of greatest consequence? Like, how can I have the most impact on on my life and in the life of those around me? That's what Paul has done. He's lived with no regrets by prioritizing what matters most. And what matters most is faithfulness to the Lord each and every day in all of the areas that he has called us to, fulfilling the calling that God had given to him. God wants us to be able to look back as the Apostle Paul and to see that lasting legacy of faithfulness, of striving, yes, of racing, yes, of courageously and zealously persevering to the end, yes. And by God's grace, by God's grace, we can do this. We can do this. Rome was not built in a day, right? It's been said that Rome Rome was not built in a day. Well, neither is a lasting legacy of faithfulness, but it can begin today. It can begin today in your life. So by recognizing that faithfulness to the Lord is what, pri- is what matters most, we can ensure that like the Apostle Paul, that we have lived every day with no regrets. Well, the third question and final question that we need to ask ourselves, if we're going to leave a consistent Christian legacy, is this. Am I living every day looking ahead? Am I living every day looking ahead. In verse 8, you can look at the text, Paul says with me, henceforth, 
There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Again, another shift here in tenses. We've seen Paul reflecting on his current situation, and we've also seen Paul reflecting on his past, and now he looks ahead to the future. Henceforth, he says, from now on, because of the past and the present, I can confidently anticipate the future. And what does he anticipate? He anticipates like like an athlete who's completed the race, who's standing on the podium, ready to receive the prize for a successful finish. He says there is laid up for him. There is laid up for him. God has reserved, set apart specifically for him, a crown of righteousness. He continues to use these athletic words to describe the victor's reward. But what is this crown of righteousness? What is the crown of righteousness? I'm glad that you asked this morning. I'm glad that you asked. I got to be honest, there is some debate as to how to best interpret this term, the crown of righteousness. Uh, One side would say that the righteousness is describing the one who's receiving the reward. So in other words, the crown is a reward for a righteous life. Like we have texts like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 that says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this crown is considered as one of those rewards, one of the rewards that that Paul will get for what he has done in the body that is good, that is righteous. And we understand that this is a reality, and yet I don't think that this is what this verse is talking about. Another side would would understand this text as righteousness not being descriptive of the one who's receiving it, but actually descriptive of the crown itself. So it's the crown that is made up of righteousness, or it's the crown that consists of righteousness. And in that sense, there's texts like Hebrews 12, verse 23, which talks about the righteous being made perfect. And some smart guys would understand this to say that this is kind of like a final stage in a believer's justification in heaven. So um, not to confuse you, that word justification is just a theological word that we use to describe being considered righteous, being declared righteous by God, right? Before we've been saved, we are guilty. And that pronouncement has been made upon our lives because of our sin. And yet when we repent and we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that term changes. We are no longer guilty. We receive the righteousness of Christ and we are declared righteous. That is what it means to be justified. And so I think that this idea, this final kind of stage of justification, uh, that it flies in the face of some of Paul's theology in the New Testament. Because we have verses that talk about that even though we don't live perfectly righteous from day to day, we have been positionally declared righteous completely and fully. Romans 5.1 says, having been justified, right? Past tense, having been justified. Or Romans 5 verse 9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. These verses communicate that full and complete justification happens at the moment of repentance. So what is it then? What is it then? Well, I, and more importantly, a bunch of other guys who are much smarter than me, I think that Paul here is more likely describing the state of perfect righteousness that will be enjoyed more generally in the presence of God by Paul and by other faithful believers 
who are welcomed into his presence. In other words, just being with Christ and and the righteousness that comes along with that. Just consider the context for a moment, okay? Consider this passage, all that we've talked about in regard to Paul's life. The suffering that he's faced, the persecution, the endurance, the sin, the sacrifice, and now his imprisonment. Paul just longs to be with his Savior, He longs to be with his Savior, where there's no more sin, there's no more sorrow, there's no more torment, there's no more pain, but all things, including Paul, will be made perfectly righteous as they should be. Well, regardless of of where you fall at the end of the day and how you define what the crime of righteousness is, at the end of the day, I don't even think that that's the point of the text. The point of the text is this, Paul's saying it's worth it, right? Whatever that reward is, as we understand it, it is worth it. It is worth it all. And we can see that this reward is incomparable to Paul, right? It's his motivation. It's his hope. It's his future. This is his confidence. And this is what he awaits the day when he shall receive it from the righteous judge. That righteous judge term is packed with such a punch. Again, consider the context here, right? Paul has been suffering unjustly or under an unrighteous judge for the last number of years in his life. He's sitting in prison as a result of an unrighteous judgment upon his life. And now he awaits the day when the one righteous judge will finally and fully award to him what he has fought for. The good news here for you and for me if you're in Christ today is that that award is not only for Paul. Right? He says, not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. This is our motivation like, this is the reason each and every day that we, that we strive to be urgent, that we strive to prioritize faithfulness to the Lord, because one day, friends, we will see Christ, and we will be with him. This is our hope and our confidence. This is our motivation. Can we just admit, life is hard sometimes. Like, there are struggles. Trials last longer than we hope they will sometimes. It's hard. Life is hard. And yet we can have confidence that each and every day as we live with urgency, as we prioritize faithfulness to the Lord in whatever circumstance that he has us in, that we are going to see Christ and we will receive that reward because of it. You know, there are lesser examples of this that I can think of. And remember in 2008, hearing the name Michael Phelps, Michael Phelps, Michael Phelps, all over the place, this great swimmer. And people were talking about his workout routine and his nutrition and all the goals that he set for the Olympic Games. Did you know, at Michael Phelps' peak training time, he would swim over 80,000 meters a week. I don't even have the brain capacity to understand how, like, what does that even look like? I don't even know. So I looked it up. That's nearly 50 miles. He would swim nearly 50 miles a week, working out five to six hours a day for six days a week. On top of that, dry land training three days a week, long swims to improve his endurance, speeding swims or fast swims to improve his time, training paddles, buoys, all these extra weights to increase his core strength. He would eat over 12,000 calories of food in a day. That's probably why he did all the workout, I think, just so that he could eat so much. 12,000 calories in a day. And we hear this, right? And I, I don't know about you, but I think swimming? Like, really? Like, why are you doing that, man? Why are you putting yourself through this rigorous training, through all this physical endurance, all this, you know, physical suffering, his pain his body's experiencing? And then we see him at the Olympic Games. And it begins to make sense, right? He receives that 15th gold medal or whatever it is. 
and being the most successful athlete of the Olympics, four Olympic games in a row. And yeah, I see him on the podium and I'm like, wow, it makes sense. The reward was worth all of the effort that he put in. The reward was worth all the effort he put in. And that's a small, small example. I understand that. But we have a better example, don't we? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says this. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. For the joy that was set before him, for the reward that was set before him, he endured the cross. In Jesus, the greatest suffering was experienced. In Jesus, the greatest pain and endurance was experienced and accomplished. Upon that cross, as Jesus died and our sin was paid for, the text says he did it all for the joy that was set before him. And in a different sermon, we could get into all the nuances of what that joy was that motivated him. And yet we know that at least in one sense, that joy was so that you and I could experience joy in him. And maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. And maybe you don't count yourself as those who have loved his appearing, those who can look forward to that day when Christ will return Maybe you're here and you know that the legacy that you're going to leave, it's, it's not the legacy that you want to leave. And more importantly, it's not the legacy that God wants you to leave. Can I tell you today, friend, that there is hope for you? That there is hope for you. That it's true. It is true that if you don't know Christ today, that you cannot anticipate the reward. But in fact, it's worse than that. You can anticipate eternal separation from the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have no hope of an eternal future with him. You are left in your sin. But look, look at verse 8 with me. I love that that righteousness again is ascribed and associated with the judge. You see, because for those of us who love Christ, we know this. It's not because we're special. It's not because we've done anything to merit this eternal reward of life with Christ. It's not because we in ourselves have loved his appearing The righteous judge has given us his righteousness. By grace, we have been saved. And that by his death and his resurrection, we have been freed from the guilt and the shame of our sin. Friends, we have been set free from the penalty of that sin. And so that declaration of you are guilty has now changed to you are righteous in my eyes because of what my my son has done for you. God has changed our desires. And so now our greatest desire in this life is to live for him and for his glory in all the areas of, his, of our life, I should say. So if you don't know him today, let me encourage you. You can experience that hope. You can anticipate that future reward. You can expect that, you can have confidence to expect that future with him. If you repent of your sin, if you believe that Jesus Christ has paid it all, And you trust in him as your Lord and your Savior. Well, as we come to a close here, the image that we should have in our minds is not, it's not of a discouraged, disheartened um, man who's pondering the dreariness of life 
or the wasted years. But as one commentator says, Paul is a battle-scarred warrior of the cross who, looking back over a long and hard and bitter fight, cries out in exaltation, I have won. I have won. I have fulfilled my ministry. And as I stand at death's door, I want you to know that it was worth it all. The reward I'm about to receive is incomparable. That crown that's going to be placed upon my head was worth all the suffering, all the pain, all the discipline, all the pouring out of my life each and every day. So Timothy, so church, so Christian, fulfill your ministry as Paul has fulfilled his. And let your legacy be this, that I have lived every day as if it was my last, pouring out myself for the Lord, that I have lived every day with no regrets, prioritizing faithfulness to the Lord above all other things, and that I have lived every day looking ahead to that glorious reward of being with my Savior. If you do this, if you do this, you will leave behind a lasting legacy, a consistent Christian legacy that matters. And you will know, you will know that when you've come to the end of your life, that you will have truly lived. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning that so often we're consumed with lesser things. So often the extent of concern for our legacy is how many commas we're going to leave in the bank account of our kids. Lord, our reputation to others, whether we're going to be known as a successful man or woman, a faithful friend, a loving grandma or grandpa, one who stood for the truth, one who was faithful. And Lord, yet, like the Apostle Paul, we pray, God, that you would help us to live every day with urgency, with intentionality, not just doing things, but doing the right things in the right way by prioritizing faithfulness to you, O oh God, in every area of our life. We ask that you would help us. Help us look ahead to that great and glorious reward of being with our Savior. And may the motivation to endure Lord, whatever this life brings, God, would you give us that motivation to be obedient to the calling that you have placed in our lives. God, would you do this all so that we would leave the best legacy behind us, a legacy of faithfulness that matters. Lord, would you fill this room now with the voices of your people who anticipate that glorious day as we respond, Lord, to your word. Fill our hearts with joy. Stir our affections for you now as you have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.